I'm Jakub Woigt, the CEO of Catalytic, and this is Unbundled. In this series, I help to demystify technology in the world of business. Join me as we explore how technology can make your business better. In this episode, we're chatting about financial technology, or as it's uh, popularly called fintech. We're chatting about new opportunities offered by this technology, skills required to offer the technology, and how crowdfunding is changing this industry. By the end of this episode, you'll have a clearer idea of how a fintech platform works. I'm joined by Lyndon Booth and Gavin Rousseau from Global Wealth Group. Good morning, guys. Good morning. Um, hey, Jakob, it's great to be here. Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for joining. So, um, Lyndon, let's start with you. Um, tell us about, about this fintech platform of yours and what it offers. Okay, brilliant. Absolutely. So uh, WealthPoint is a, a piece of the Global Wealth Group, and it's really where the technology platform sits. And what, what we do is we run a global investment platform uh, specifically for institutional quality real estate. So for those investors around the world who love real estate, who want a bit of diversification so they don't only want to own shares or or have savings in the bank account, uh, but want something slightly different, um, but up until now have never really been able to access the best real estate deals from around the world without having to break their bank. And that's what our platform does. As an investor, you can log in, you can have a look around at the deals that we have brought to the platform that have been extremely carefully selected with massive amounts of due diligence, and you can choose the deal you want to invest in and invest from as little as $1,000, sometimes even $100, into deals that up until now you would have to have around $2 million before you'd even get a seat at the table. Okay, I think that's quite a nice intro. Um so how is this different from from what always has been available in the market? Great question. I think if if let's let's stick specifically with real estate if we can. So if you ever wanted an offshore real estate portfolio before, uh, you had a few options. You could buy a REIT. Um, you know, I don't want this to become about uh, explaining to people what REITs are. So I'm assuming people understand that it's it's a it's a stock on the market that then goes and a company runs a whole bunch of real estate portfolios. But through a REIT, you never actually have control. You're never choosing what deals you want. It's basically a fund, and you're trusting the fund manager. So so that was one option if you wanted real estate. The other option was that you could go to the UK, you could go to Europe, you could go to the USA and buy something yourself, 100% owned. And for most people, that would be residential. So you'd go and find an apartment in London. You would have to set up a company in London to own it. You'd get a mortgage, you'd appoint a managing agency, and you'd have to put all your money into that one deal. If you, you know, most of those deals started about a hundred thousand pounds. So, you know, two million rand at least is what you'd need to invest in that. Um, there wasn't really anything else. There wasn't any in between where you could be a real estate owner in London or the UK, but starting at a much smaller amount. Okay. And, and so, so what has brought this opportunity about? Is it, is it technology? Is it, um, why has this come to light now? If I can call it like that. Yeah, great question again. So uh, around the world, um, technology has been driving changes in the way regulators are prepared to allow investors into deals, number one. But number two, also uh, technology has helped people who are running these deals, the very bigger and, and significant role plays in the real estate industry, 
technology has allowed them to start being far more willing to accept people at lower amounts. If, if I, in the old way, if I wanted to go and invest in a really good deal in America, let's say there's an office building in New York and I wanted to own a piece of that, I would have to go through a lot of um, legal work to become acceptable to them as, an, as a company. I would have to transfer funds. Uh, that process itself would need a lot of compliance, verification of who I am as an investor. And the administration of that is just so much work that for these big companies, they weren't interested in the little guy. It's just not worth their while. When they're getting people uh, lining up with two, three million dollars, then it becomes worth their while. But if you've only got a thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars, they're just not interested in doing that type of work to get you into their deals. And that's what technology changes. It allows us to seamlessly uh, at scale and very effectively and cheaply do all the work that needs to be done to allow an investor into that deal at a very small cost. Um, and, and, and so technology has driven this, and then the regulators around the world have had to go, wow, okay. So technology is enabling, and fintech, you know, in, in your, Yaku, in your introduction, you spoke about how fintech financial technology is changing the world. It's not only in this space, it's, a, it's everywhere. Financial technology systems are making regulators aware that the world is changing and that ordinary investors are going to start getting access to deals they've never been able to be a part of before. And now they're having to think about how to make that possible. And that's where the regulators have also come to the party. It started off mainly in the U.S. about 10 years ago with the U.S. publishing a lot of crowdfunding uh, regulation. That then spread to Europe. Uh, South Africa took a long time. Uh, we had to work ourselves as, as a leading company driving this space in South Africa. We worked with the regulators for a very long time to keep encouraging them, and we were very grateful that they met us at, on this journey. They were there, they were willing to say, great, we know the future is going this way. How can we partner with you to figure out what we as a regulatory body need to put in place? Uh, and so those two changes, the financial technology and the regulating meeting it, is opening up investment spaces around the world. Okay, so before we go on to the actual technology, I've, I want to ask one more question. Um, so, how long have you been going at it? So, our, this part of this portion of our company, the, the fintech platform, started six years ago. Um, we spent a large part of that because uh, our, our platform, unlike many fintech platforms, our platform is global, which means if you're sitting in China or in India or in South Africa, you can invest in a deal in America. Now, or each one of those transactions, each one of those pathways has compliance involved. So we don't only have to understand the South African compliance, we also have to understand the American, uh, the European, mm. because funds often move through those bank accounts. So we spent a large part of this time on the go while we've been operating and successfully helping investors build their portfolios of global real estate, we've also been having to continuously adapt and learn. Uh, and I think we are now starting at the point where we're scaling, where our company is growing quickly because we've put all that learning into effect. We now are very good at what we do in terms of getting the technology and the compliance aligned to make an absolutely seamless and great user experience for investors. So, okay, so I want to move on to the actual technology. Um, and uh, a, a lot of conversations we have on this podcast circles back to the future that's everything is digitized and platform-based. Um, so so it almost fits in. Uh, it's actually uncanny how, how it fits in. Um, Gavin, let's go Let's go to you. Um, number one, you look very calm for a, for a CTO, so I assume you've got, <laughs> you've got very good tech. Um, but let, let's start. Uh, well, I, 
How did the, the platform start? Did, did you go from scratch? Is, uh, was it off-the-shelf type technology, or, or where did, how did you start this? So probably around about, I'd say, almost three and a half years ago, we started bringing a lot of our uh, platform builds uh, grouping in-house. So previously, we were using outsourced development partners, and outsourced development partners are great, but they don't necessarily do what you would like or have the, the skill set you want. You, you end up with the, the skill set that they have. So a lot of my experience has been on the primary capital markets in the U.S., and there's a huge amount of correlation between how that primary capital raising works for IPOs and what we're doing on this side. So there's a, there's a good grounding on that side. And then we brought our team in-house, and the, the team built what we have now from scratch, like everything complete. Well, obviously not uh, server storage and stuff like that. You know, you, you rent that as you need it. Yes. But it, it, everything, the way our architecture is built, the way everything's laid out, it's all completely in-house, designed to be uh, highly scalable, highly secure. Like That's the, the basics of where we started off with, with scalability and security. Again, we're dealing with people's financial information, and it's critical to us to make sure that it's always available and it's always secure. Um, and then uh, when you talk about the coding, because, um, you know, the, the one thing that's, that's always apparent for me in, a, in the world of technology, there's so many options. How do you, how do you pick the, the language, for example, that you code in to make sure that you've got longevity and, and scalability? Because uh, uh, to me, it's almost like uh, every coder out there has their, their sort of preferred flavor. And when, when you employ a new one and it goes, okay, everything that's here is rubbish, we need to redo it. So, so you can't actually pick a language. Uh, essentially, what we've done is we picked an architecture pattern. So that architecture pattern allows us to have um, much smaller units of uh, code. So the theory with that is it doesn't matter what language we pick. At the moment, we on our back-end services, we're running three different languages, and it's really not an issue. As long as the endpoints all stay the same and they can communicate to each other and we have a standardized way of them communicating with each other, it becomes really, really simple to manage that. So th that was one of our, our earliest choices was specifically around that architecture. And again, it's it's you get to have really cool architecture when you've got uh, really experienced people. So we, we've got a our yeah. chief architect and our DevOps guy. The two of them are phenomenal. And I'm not going to say their names because people are not going to be poaching them. <laughs> <laughs> so, and, and tell me quickly then, um, from a... Uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, or, or let's let's say in the new, near future, what's your technology priorities? Um, it sounds like uh, it almost fits into also a lot of the conversations that we have as, as you're going for functionality over technology religion, as we call it. So what would you say are your technology priorities for the platform? So a lot of what we're doing with our platform at the moment is building out um, user feature sets. So we don't really have a massive amount of additional technology requirements. Like, sure, there's, there's a couple of interesting things that we want to do around OCR for document recognition and stuff like that. And they're really nice to have at this point. But essentially what we're doing is we're trying to make sure that our platform is easy to use for everyone who wants to use it. And we've got um, a B2B and a B2C component. So we need to make sure that both of those are easy to use for anyone who needs it. 
So on a pure technology level, it's we've got a lot of our grounding in place. Uh, and now it's making sure that I think Lyndon likes to use the analogy of the, the Tesla, where you first uh, you first build the chassis and the engine before you start worrying about what the, the outside looks like. So we've got a really good chassis and a really good engine. We've we've started spending a lot more time on uh, making it look pretty now. Okay, I, I almost wanted to say it sounds like uh, the, the only or the or the main concern is making sure that uh, the the user interface is is um, appealing to use. Hundred percent. Maybe I can jump in here, Yaku, because yeah. um, a, a large part of our business, probably the biggest part of it, is B two B, so business to business. So other. Other businesses using our technology, our platform, our financial money movement, our compliance, um, and our deal supply to be able to run their own version of the platform for their own investor base. And so at the moment, the core of the platform, how an investor can invest into a deal, that, that we've nailed 100%. Now we're building out a lot of the tools that make a third-party business who's using our platform uh, be able to manage and engage with our platform itself. So that component, which is almost like a secondary addition to the core functionality of the investor investing, we're now adding the secondary layer of how companies using this can have a better insight into the data, into the processes that their investors are following. So it's building on that business-to-business piece. Is that almost like... Um how can I say it? Almost like a white label type scenario where I, I can take the the functionality that your platform is offering, uh, but uh, brand it and and package it in a way that I want to take it to market. Absolutely, and then there are a whole lot of business parts of that. For example, the fee settings, which deals you want or don't want, that you, as the owner of that white label, get to make the decision on. Um, and and this becomes really exciting. Because even though we're a South African company, we're very proudly South African, our biggest markets are outside the country. Uh, So when an Indian um, company who has millions of people in their database, potential investors, they might want to tweak the business model. They might have a different sense of what the Indian market wants from deals, and they need to be able to customize to a degree what the Indian investor sees and experiences different to what the South African investor and these these nuances that can understand that investors around the world might experience and want something different to each other. Okay, that's fascinating. So I want to come back to you, Lennon, um, uh, because we also had a, a brief conversation about this this crowdfunding uh, component. So I read a, a, a very interesting um, uh Twitter uh, thread over the weekend where they were they were talking about uh, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis who's now they've got a they've got a, a, a like a Web three program and people are, are are investing in it using NFTs or something and I, I don't know apparently in the last three months uh, or, or the last ninety days they make they made thirty million dollars or some I don't know like a crazy number um, but it definitely feels to me like there's a there's a deliberate trend from from people to want to put, participate in the in the experience and the offering and the technology so how does the crowdfunding component work in in your business? You know, crowdfunding is a big word and it gets used in many different industries to raise money. So fundamentally, it's about raising money. And whether you're raising money for a real estate deal or raising money for your friend down the road who wants to start a home brewery in his garage, um, 
they they can use the same principles. You tell a crowd about it, the crowd gets excited, the crowd invests. But fundamentally, they're very different depending on the underlying asset, whether it's a, a very well-regulated institutional piece of real estate or whether it's uh, Ashton Kutcher's latest brainwave to make a lot of bucks. Um, and so while crowdfunding as a principle is the same, each of these different asset classes, whether it's you know NFT, uh, something that's still emerging, um, or a, as I said, the brewery down the road, each of them in the back end will have very different regulatory spaces that you have to comply with. And that'll mean a different process, a different um, kind of of activity. However, what's exciting is that the technology, uh, for example, if we decided to, we could tomorrow put a, and, and I'm being facetious, so go with me here, we could tomorrow put a um, a brewery in my neighbor's garage on the platform and say, anyone who wants to be a part of this, the technology will still do its job. There is a deal, there's a bunch of investors, there's a, a account, a dollar-based account where you deposit money, you indicate an interest, you digitally sign your document, and you've completed a process. Now, that can apply no matter what asset you've got in the background. Obviously, the compliance needs to come in as to whether you're allowed to do that or not. But that is where crowdfunding as a technology becomes exciting. Um, and the analogy we use is Amazon. So if you think about Amazon, they started out mm. selling books. Now they sell everything. And in a way, that's the same as fintech, financial technology and crowdfunding platforms. We're starting out selling real estate. But there's absolutely no reason that we can't use exactly the same platform in three years' time to be selling real estate, your your, your partner's business, a brewery down the road, um, any asset that you want to raise as long as the compliance is there. So crowdfunding as a principle is certainly growing, and it is bringing opportunities to ordinary investors that they've never had access to before. Okay, excellent. Um, and then I have to ask this question um, from a regulatory perspective. Um, you know, we often um, have a scenario where, where the technology moves a lot, a lot faster than regulators and and the laws. From uh, in, in South Africa or, or worldwide, would you say that regulators are in touch with how fast the technology is moving? I think they're catching up. So, you know, just this month, the European Union has released new crowdfunding legislation. Uh, the U.S. released an initial version 10 years ago, but they adapted it quite significantly a year ago. Uh, South Africa, we're still getting there. There's not as, as clear specific regulation, um, but they are certainly catching up. I think um, – in particular, the, the countries that have very active financial markets and, and the capacity of regulators to adapt. They are coming out. They're, they're acknowledging the opportunity that's getting presented. Um, but, you know, a regulator's job is always to protect the little guy. It's always to protect that investor who may not know what they're doing and can get very easily exploited or taken for a ride. And so and crowdfunding probably makes taking someone for a ride far easier than ever before. <laughs> Because now you can do things quicker and easier and you can reach the guy who's just got a cell phone. Yeah. Um, and that just means that the opportunity to exploit investors is far bigger through crowdfunding and fintech than ever before. And the regulators are, are seeing the opportunity, but they're also owning up to their obligations and they are coming to the party. Uh, slowly, maybe in some cases, uh, but it is a, a worldwide movement that they, they're waking up to it and, and getting ready to embrace it. Okay, um, Kevin, if you, if you had to look back now um, uh, over the past uh, six odd years, um, lessons learned, would you would you do things um, in in a, in the same way, or if you had to start this business today, would you do it uh, in a different way? 
Yeah, it's an interesting one. So from a pure tech side, would we do things differently? No, I don't think so. I think we'd run exactly what we've got. Uh, we'd build it the, the same way. I, we're, a lot of our issues were uh, on the regulation side. So like, if I had to start again, I'd put a lot more focus onto getting the regulation side more tightly under control earlier. Uh, it's it's an interesting thing where you make an assumption that something is going to take two months, three mm. months, four months, and before you know it, uh, six, eight, 12 months have gone by and you don't quite fully have that uh, all nailed down. And it's purely on regulation. That, that's been our biggest uh, blocker to overcome. Uh, as Lyndon said earlier, we've We've largely overcome most of those blockers. We have a, a far better understanding of how this world operates compared to where we were. I think we were, not to put it mildly, we were fumbling around a little bit. And since when we've, we've gotten some really high class people in to come and assist us. And that's the, the important piece of that is the, the regulation side you can't do by yourself. You need someone who's, who lives and breathes and knows how to speak to regulators specifically because they, they don't talk the same way we do. It's been, a, it's been an interesting learning curve on that side. But that would be my yeah. main change, in all honesty. So anybody, yeah, if I may, yeah, yeah. So if I may, I think just to sing Gavin's praises a bit, yeah. Um, you know, as product owner, I need to keep my CTO happy and sing his praises. But uh, um, I, I think the answer that Gavin gave you is one hundred percent correct, and the reason why is because from the beginning, the the most important decision Gavin made at a tech level is on that architecture, which allows us to very quickly change something. Um, easily. So if we made a decision two years ago about something that needs to be changed now, it's very easy for the team to do that because the architecture underlying the system and how it works with all these very small components that fit together, you can replace a component quickly. It's not this one monolithic piece of code. Um, and that allows us to be very adaptive. So we don't have to wait three or four years to go, oh my goodness, we've made a mistake. Uh, we can, as soon as we see it, the guys can get in there and fix it. And I, I think that's the one key decision that our tech team made um, very smartly that has allowed us to be very flexible, very adaptive, very agile, uh, and and keep our code exactly where we want it at any one time. Um, thank you for that, and I think that sort of fits into to the message that we always try and preach on the show. Yeah, that um, you know one must must plan for the future and scalability. And and uh, as I said earlier, technology religion is not always a good thing. Uh, you, <laughs> must, you must be must try and be as objective as as possible. Um, uh, uh, Gavin, skills is, is it a is it a a, a big gap, or, or do you find that that you you can um, build your team quite easily? Yeah, that's, it's been quite an interesting journey in South Africa in the last, as so I've been doing this, like probably going on 20 years now, actually a little bit over. And there are a lot of skills out there. There really are. Uh, the problem that you have is it's the, it's, it becomes quite hard to access those skills because there's a lot of people fishing in the same pond. So some of the early decisions we made on our technology stack is to actually cut down the size of the pond. So if you're right now, if you look at, uh, say, you need a C-sharp uh, software engineer, like you're competing against every other company in South Africa for that same guy. So we don't do that. We've uh, Our stack is a, little bit, um, is a little bit outside the norm, 
and it's actually quite hard to learn, which is has positives and negatives. But mm -hmm. what it does mean is if someone is able to work in that stack, it means, A, they're pretty good to begin with, and there's not that many of them. And there's not that many people looking for those people. So that that was a, an interesting decision we made early on. It's a, it goes against the grain of a, a few other um, bits of advice that you'll receive, which is, you know, you always take the most popular stack because that way you can always find people. Yeah. The problem is those people are always in high demand and there's not enough of them. And I think a lot of the South African technology companies spend a lot of their time outsourcing to external parties and not enough time building the skill sets in-house and building the skill sets in-country as well. Because there's we've got tons of people that could very realistically be able to do this work. But if you aren't investing in them early, they're never going to get there. If you keep hiring dev houses out of um, – uh, the Middle East and um, further further out from that and Eastern Europe, you're never going to build up the internal capacity. And I, I'm talking about a, an, an overall country level. Well, I'm I'm with you on that, and I think that well, that is part of the reason why I asked the question because, uh, you know, for us that's in South Africa and believing in the future, um, we we believe that. Um, how can I say new and emerging platforms like yours is the future and, and for that, for that purpose, we, we need to make sure that we have enough skills. And I think, like you say, um, there's lots of people here. We, we need to, uh, dare I say, take the pain of, of getting people at the level where, where we need them and, and, and then they become exportable, you know, which is, which is good for everybody. Yes and no. <laughs> so, uh, a lot of what's happening at the moment is uh, I think our software engineers in country are getting a lot of external recognition now. And there's, there's constantly a, a stream of people leaving, uh, of companies looking to get our software engineers because they can – they can get them to go somewhere. They can pay them more. They can give them visas. Like, you know, it becomes, yeah. becomes quite hard without us creating more opportunities and more people specifically to actually hold on to a lot of these skills. That being said, a lot of what we have is um, we are able to work with international people. I mean, we've got a, a guy that sits in Panama, for instance. It's not really a big deal. He, he He's in Panama. We see him online. He's phenomenal. So... Yeah, I think I think that's also I, I saw um, uh, especially post pandemic where they're talking about this uh, term called a no collar worker where where you just uh, churning out a piece of work and you're getting paid for it and and you and you carry on, not unlike the people that's living in Eisner that just wear t-shirts. Um, <laughs> so so uh, Lyndon, two last questions from my side. Um, one, if you if you had to give people advice and somebody had to say to you that they'd want to start some sort of a fintech platform, would you say yes or no? Absolutely, it's it's the future without a doubt. There's um, the uh, you know we're we're already deeply into the revolution. That's far more than just an evolution. It's a very rapid evolution, so a revolution. Um, and we in in many ways we've only started. But the old ways of doing things, the old models are gone, and they if they're not dead, they're dying quickly. So absolutely, this is the the future of how a lot of things are going to do be done. And in the financial world, in the investment world. Um, 100% financial technology platforms are going to change things even far more than we've got a sense right now. Actually, while you're saying that, it, it made me think now. So, so the large 
historic uh, banking and financial organizations, um, do, do you think they're going to catch up or is it too late for them? I think they will catch up purely because they can catch up through acquisitions, through mergers. We're already seeing, you know, in, in the fintech space, many of the big uh, VCs that are investing into these companies are financial institutions. You know, in South Africa, if you take the Easy Equities example, you know, and have a look at who who funded a lot of their work, etc. So definitely, without a doubt, the financial institutions know this is where the future is going, and they will catch up through acquisitions and mergers. Okay, cool. So last question: um, If if people want to learn more about what you guys do, where do they go? The best place, you know, once again, uh, as a B2B company, I'm not going to send them to um, any of our individual clients because I'd have to choose from one of 20 as to which platform to send them. So I can't do that. But if they want to find out about the tech side and and WealthPoint in general, there's uh, WealthPoint.app is our website, WealthPoint.app, or follow us on LinkedIn at WealthPoint Platform. Uh, You can reach us there as well. Myself and Gavin, we're on LinkedIn. You can reach out to us if you want to contact us directly. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, this was a really, really great uh, discussion. I really appreciate it. Yeah, Kurt, it was great being on here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Unbundled, brought to you by Catalytic, a series that aims to demystify technology so that you can make smarter decisions for your business. Remember, you can listen to all the podcasts on on the Cliff Central app or website, and for added convenience, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. If you're looking for help with a communication tool for your business, uh, make sure to visit catalytic.co.za.